Today's reading is from Matthew 17, 1 through 20. Hear the word of the Lord. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic, and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. Uh, my name is Gabe Coyle. If you're new, I'm the campus pastor here at Christ Communities downtown campus. And my family and I were on vacation for a couple weeks on a lake in Tennessee. And I just wanted to share a quick tip um, for everybody. Okay. Um, <clears throat> you know, if you have any plans to be on the water in the summer, um, you may think that your skin is adequately prepped um, because maybe you out, you're out working in your yard or maybe you were playing frisbee golf at a park or Maybe you tan easily. I don't know. Um, just, just know, this is the tip. SPF 30 won't last you from 9 a.m. till the rest of the day. On the first day, you're out of the sun. Because, because listen, <clears throat> um, if you're out there, your, your skin won't turn red. You know, I had some friends who weren't as nice who called my thighs pasty um, <laughs> or the other white meat, you know. It, it didn't... <clears throat> It, it doesn't turn red, it turns purple, and uh, then you have to explain to your daughter why her daddy's crying when she accidentally scratched your thighs. So there's your tip, lather up with sunscreen. Um, 
No, but in all seriousness, it's, it's really great to be back. We feel refreshed, and it's just wonderful to be here with our church family. Um, while I was away, I, I heard a story, a story about a woman named Kim. Um, Kim had spent most of her life, around 54 years, where there was this whole part she didn't even realize. She didn't realize there were these whole sections of her life that were unseen. And, and it had drastic effects on, on how she lived her life. The real problem, though, for Kim was that she didn't know what kind of problem she had. You see, she knew that over and over and over again, the world, it didn't respond the way she would expect it to respond. So, for example, when she was younger, she went to a camp, and they had all these sailboats, right? And she came across two other women who were trying to put the sail up in the sailboat. And they couldn't figure it out. But she was really good at sailing, and she was really sharp. And so she came up to this woman, and, to, to these two girls, and she said, hey, I can help you put that sail up. And they were angry, like furious at her. And she couldn't understand why. And this happened to her time and time and time again. Now, <clears throat> when she got older, she actually went through a whole history of being bullied when she grew up. She was really sharp, so she made it through college, made it through medical school, but she started her own medical practice. And she started hiring medical assistants. And this old issue of just not understanding why the world was responding the way she was expecting it to respond, she thought everything was fine with her medical assistant, and then they would resign. She would hire a new medical assistant, and she thought everything was fine, and then they would resign. A new one, and over and over again. It wasn't until one of her friends was diagnosed with Asperger's that she began to read a book about Asperger's and was going through the checklist of how to know whether you have Asperger's or not. And she sat there and all of a sudden she goes, oh, this is me. She had no idea what was going on in her brain, that she couldn't pick up unique emotional cues. She could pick up basic emotional cues, but... We all need emotional dexterity to navigate relationships in healthy ways. And that whole section of her life was completely unseen. And so feeling a bit of shame uh, inappropriately, but still shame nonetheless, and a lot of fear. She was very sharp. I mean, she'd started her own practice. She went to an Asperger support group and heard about this research study. And so she joined the research study, and the goal of the research study <clears throat> was to basically try what's called TMS on her brain. TMS, it, it stands for transcranial <laughs> magnetic, you know. Uh, anyway, it, it's a fancy way of saying that there's a magnet they put on your head and they shoot magnetic waves through your brain to try to activate neurons. And to see if, if that, that can activate sort of picking up emotional cues in conversation that she'd constantly miss. So she goes in for this research study, and they have her read a couple sentences. Sentences she's read all of her life, and she reads them the way she's always read them. Like, is this a holdup? Did they make up? I don't drive a car. I drive a pickup, you know? And then she sat underneath this magnet and click, click, click for about 30 minutes. And then they gave her those sentences again. And she read them, and suddenly, is this a holdup? The inflection even in her voice changed. She saw for the first time the fear that was latent in those words. She felt it. It was, it was, it was mind-blowing. She, she, this was a whole side of the world she didn't even know existed. She, she'd kind of heard of it, but she didn't even know what she was missing. 
And she could feel the fear in those words. Now, this, this impacted such a small group of the tested case studies that they couldn't even publish the paper. And it only lasted about 90 minutes for her. So when, by the time she left, her brain was exactly the same way it was when she came in. The difference is that she felt it. The difference is she knew that there was something she was missing. She knew that there was this whole side of the world that she had missed. When she was trying to wrestle with why are people responding the way they are to me, she understood that there was this whole emotional dexterity that she was missing out on on unique situations where she was maybe butting into conversations she hadn't realized before. And sure, her brain was back to the way it was. She couldn't pick up on the emotional cues, but she knew they were there. And that changed everything. It changed the way she assessed conversations. It changed the way that she engaged relationships. It changed the way she worked with patients, everything. You see, in order to change, one of the key elements of change in our lives is exposing it to a new frame of reference. And as we've been going through Matthew's account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, that's what Matthew's doing. He's actually exposing us to a whole new frame of reference, to some degree what Christians have called faith throughout the millennia. It's a whole new way of seeing the world. It's, it's the right way, we would think, of seeing Jesus, the way that Matthew saw Jesus when he walked and talked with Jesus, and it changes everything, everything. Now, <clears throat> what Matthew has shown us as we've been walking through these 17 chapters and how we reframe, how we perceive Jesus is that he's not just a good teacher, He's not just a great person, but he's actually God become flesh. He's this cosmic king revealed. And so, as we come to Matthew 17, Matthew's hammering time and again, and we've seen it all through actually Matthew, is that just a little shift in your faith, a change in your perspective can change everything. It really can. A little shift in your faith can change everything. How you see God working in the world, how you see God working in Jesus, how you see who Jesus is changes everything. Because if you miss this, you're going to be like Kim. Confused and why the world isn't working out the way you thought it should work out. Maybe, just maybe like Kim, you'll think the world is more cruel than it actually is. More painful than it actually is. More confusing, more fatalistic, more impossible to change. And the more I thought about this passage this morning, the more I realized just for each and every one of us, there's something in every one of our lives that we, we want to change, don't we? We've all, we've all got something in our lives somewhere where that, that we want to change, or maybe even we feel like we need to change. Maybe, maybe you're here this morning and your marriage is on its last leg, and it feels like it's just doomed towards divorce. Maybe you've been single for a majority of your life. And you feel like you're, you're going to be alone. Not even that you're looking for marriage, but you feel like you're destined to be alone and that terrifies you. Maybe, maybe your job, you can't imagine how any way, shape, or form how it could get any better. And, and you're dreading every day you step back into the office. Maybe after all the news stories we've heard of another death, of another injustice, not just in our city, not just in our nation, but across the world, and you're saying, there's no possibility that this is ever going to be made right. And you're starting to become cynical. You're starting to get worn down, and, and you don't even have the concept of hope, or it's just got a flicker of light left. It doesn't have to be that way. That's what we see in Jesus this morning, in his words, is that it doesn't 
have to be defined with cynicism. Even the most impossible situations have the possibility of change. Just a little shift in your faith changes everything. So if you haven't already, would you please turn with me to Matthew 17. Um, We're going to look at where that shift is needed and how it changes everything. Where that shift is needed and how it changes everything. If you are using one of our community Bibles, it's found on page number 822. You know, our story, it begins with Jesus. He grabs Peter and James and John, three of the apostles out of the 12, and they go hiking. They go hiking. And now, we don't know if Jesus kind of prepped them for this situation or not. And I, I mean, you have to ask yourself, how could anybody prep you for what's about to happen? <laughs> and we don't know either if they got to the mountaintop and it happened or if they were stopping for water and then all of a sudden, bam! You know, like, oh, this, this is what happens in verse 2. And Jesus, he was transfigured before them. It's like a lightning bolt where there are no clouds in the sky. Suddenly, Jesus' face is as brilliant as the sun, and his clothes are as pure as light, and it's emanating, and it's blinding. And Matthew calls this Jesus' transfiguration. How many of you have used the word transfigure in your everyday language this past week? Anyone? Man, I was going to be impressed um, and kind of freaked out. But here's the deal. Often when we think of the word transfigure, we think it's related to transformation transfiguration or like transformation. But there's a unique nuance in the difference here. Transformation means to be wholly changed, okay? It's kind of like the caterpillar that becomes the butterfly in the cocoon. But transfiguration, it's revealing what is there under the surface. It's kind of like removing a mask and you see the true face of the one you've always longed to know. And what we see here when Jesus is transfigured, is something that the whole world so often misses. It's Jesus' unadulterated glory. He's the light of life. Transcendence. And he's revealed to be what Matthew has said he was all the way back in Matthew chapter 1. Emmanuel. God with us. And I love, you know, what happens next. Somehow they notice that two other guys are there, you know. I don't know how you, you, you think that, you know, I'm just looking at Jesus and my eyes are getting blinded, but they realize that two other guys are there, Moses and Elijah. And Peter, you know, a lot of scholars have tried to figure out what Peter is saying here in our passage. Like, hey, hey, you guys, maybe I should build a couple tents. Like, this is like the camper's dream. <laughs> and, and they're trying to figure out, you know, is this talking about the Feast of Tabernacles and this? But honestly, Mark's account, I think, is helpful here because basically Mark says, Look, Peter's so overwhelmed, he just starts babbling. And he's like, uh, I, uh, you know, uh, I, could, I could build some tents um, for us. I mean, these two heroes of mine. I mean, we all know the feeling when we start babbling when you're around a celebrity that you really admire. I mean, these were the two heroes of the Israelite faith, Moses and Elijah. And Jesus is doing something you never thought he would do. And he's standing next to your two heroes. I mean, your brain's on overload. So we kind of give Peter a break here, right? <clears throat> well... That still begs this question, why Moses and Elijah? I know they're these big heroes, but there's something very intentional going on here. Moses and Elijah, they also have this grandiose experience of God's glory on a mountaintop. If you look in the pages of Scripture, in 1 Kings 19, as well as Exodus 24, Moses has this experience with God on Mount Sinai, and Elijah has this experience with God on Mount Horeb. But this is why this is significant. 
Moses and Elijah, they see God's glory. Jesus embodies it. Jesus embodies it. It doesn't have some outside source. It is emanating from the person of Jesus. And Matthew's making his point. Somehow, somehow, if you start connecting the dots in the historical, the story of what God has been doing in history, somehow Jesus is the same God that revealed himself to Elijah and to Moses, somehow. That's who's before Peter, James, and John. And even though Peter's like, hey, we should set up some tents and make some s'mores, you know. Um, <laughs> this, this really bright cloud in the midst of Peter's babbling, it's almost like God the Father comes and rescues Peter before he says something really crazy. The cloud comes down and it's, it's like the brilliance that they saw in Jesus now takes over the whole landscape. And a voice comes out of the cloud and it's God the Father and he says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. That's not like just put in your earbuds. That means obey him. He has authority. In other words, Jesus isn't some brilliant guy amongst a bunch of other brilliant guys, okay? He stands above the rest as the only son of God. He's not one option among many. He is the option or nothing. He's God become flesh with all of God's authority over flesh. And he's entered the world. God's here. Do you see this? He's not some lofty throne way far away. He's right there on the mountain with his people. Now, when they heard this voice that came from the cloud, and this isn't, like I said, this isn't a voice you just hear with your ears. It's a voice that kind of resonates deep in your bones. They do what's most appropriate. They get low and they get low quick, all right? Because this is the God of the universe, the one that holds their life in his very hands, the one who causes nations to rise and fall, the one who is sovereign and holy and pure. And when they're on their face, it's here we read something I think is just so beautiful. We read of Jesus. In verse 7, Jesus came and he touched them. He came and he touched them saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus comes and touches them. I mean, the very glory of God was emanating from Jesus, something that they didn't even have categories for. And when they fall on their face, God doesn't just disappear. God in Christ comes and he touches them. And he comforts them as a way of saying, I know this is a lot to take in, <laughs> but don't be afraid. Stand up. Stand up. And if they're thinking anything, I almost could imagine that, that Jesus' voice sounded awful similar to the voice they heard in the cloud, almost like a son's voice resonates as a father's. You can kind of notice the connection. And just like that, this window was given to them about who Jesus is, not some mere mortal, not just a great teacher, but the one who within him, as Paul says, the fullness of the deity dwells. And also just like that, it's hidden again, out of plain sight, just 90 minutes. And of course, they don't see it any longer. 
but they know it's there even though they don't. And their frame of reference has suddenly been expanded. Well, coming down the mountain, you, you see them begin to start connecting the dots. Well, this must be why, you know, Jesus calls God his Father. This must be why he can walk on the water. This is why he can do the miracles. And they ask questions about Elijah, how he's to supersede or to come before the Messiah. And all of it's starting to connect. And yet, there's still quite a bit of mystery because the one thing they do grasp somehow in some way is that God is here in the Messiah, and yet they don't grasp it. Not at least until after the resurrection. Because it's when you go and you actually listen to these guys when they begin to report on it. The Apostle John writes in first, or John chapter 1, verse 14, And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When Peter talks about that moment in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. This moment changes everything. And yet they don't know how to process it yet. <laughs> obvious, that's obvious as the way they continue to live and they're, they're reflecting on some of this. But, but like in our story earlier with Kim, she has this window now that's opened up. There's this whole part of her world she didn't even know existed and she experienced it. She felt it. She saw it. And even though she can't see it anymore, she has a lot of processing to do as to what just happened. And that's kind of what we see happening with the disciples here. They're processing. They haven't figured it out, but they're processing. And it had to have been when they came down the mountain that, that everyday life now just felt kind of surreal. <laughs> it's like after you just got into a car accident, and then the very next day you try to go back to life as usual. It just doesn't go that way, does it? You're processing, and you're thinking... The ordinary just doesn't feel ordinary anymore. And yet, the crowds come, just like they've always done. The other nine apostles are looking up at Jesus and the three apostles who are with him. And this father comes up to Jesus. It's almost like every other day before the transfiguration. And he comes up and says, hey, Jesus, I need you to heal my son because your disciples just couldn't do it. And Jesus, in verse 17, laments. We get this grandiose picture of who he is, and then he laments. What is he lamenting here? How long will I be with you? You understand that this is the God of the universe who's walking with people, talking with people, and they completely miss who is amongst them, that God is there. And after these kind of searing words, he heals the boy. And this is where it starts to get interesting, okay? So we've been following this story, and this is where I want us to land, right here. The other nine apostles, they ask an interesting question, okay? Because <clears throat> they're confused. They pull Jesus aside, and they say, hey, why couldn't we cast out this demon? You did it in like one word. Why couldn't we? Because back in Matthew chapter 10, if you remember the storyline, Jesus told them, you are to now announce that the kingdom of God is breaking in. And with that, as in word and deed, is to cast out demons. 
So this is what they're told to do. So Jesus, you told us to do it. You said we were empowered to do it. We tried to do it, and it didn't work. Why? Why couldn't we do what you told us to do and said we could do, Jesus? It's a good question. And honestly, if you've been following Jesus for any length of time, you've probably asked that question. You've seen a promise in Scripture. You've heard a command in Scripture, and you've asked yourself, why didn't that work? Why didn't that prayer get answered? Why didn't that person, why wasn't that person healed? Why didn't that relationship reconcile? Why couldn't I fill in the blank? When you feel like there's a clear command in scripture to go and do and a clear promise. How does Jesus answer? This really crucial question I think that shows up time and again as we follow Jesus. What's his answer? Why didn't it work? Because of your little faith. I think that's a dangerous answer <laughs> because it's so misunderstood. And I want us to, to answer this a little bit and wrestle in that answer a little bit, okay? First off, the word meaning little faith, it's actually one word. It's pretty tough to translate. It only shows up here in all of Scripture, this, in, this particular, in Matthew's retelling of this account. But I think it probably is better to say that its emphasis is on poor faith. A lot of scholars highlight this, so little or poor faith. And whenever you have a poverty of anything, like poverty of finances, it means you have a lack of something. That's what poverty means, right? And so you have a lack of faith is what Jesus is saying. Little, often we think of, well, at least you got a little, where Jesus is emphasizing you lacked. <laughs> you didn't have enough faith here. I think Eugene Peterson, he captures the essence of what Jesus is saying brilliantly and his paraphrase and the message when he paraphrased what Jesus says here as, because you're not yet taking God seriously. That hit home for me. Because you're not yet taking God seriously. Jesus points out that the source of the problem is their faith is lacking. And if you're anything like me, that makes me squirm in my seat like no one's business, right? Because to be clear, not every unanswered prayer or every healing that doesn't happen or every relationship that isn't rec reconciled is because you lack faith, okay? And I think sometimes we jump that way and we go to this extreme. Anything that bad ha that, that, that's bad that happens or something that fails, it's because you lacked faith. And that's, that's not what I'm saying. This isn't the only story in all of Scripture. But this one is in Scripture, and it is here to teach us. And Jesus is highlighting something really important. Because listen... Let me, let me readdress this again. Just because something isn't answered, a prayer isn't answered, or something terrible comes into your life, that doesn't mean you lack faith. I mean, you could look at the story of Job, right? This is what all of Job's friends were saying. Hey, Job, you did something, dude. That's the only thing that explains this. And God's like, actually, no. So there are things that are even outside of our explanation. But, but, we shouldn't let ourselves off the hook too quickly too quickly. The reason this is in scripture is to invite us in soul searching over failure. And this is what's helped me even understand what's navigated in the tension of scripture, okay? While not everything that fails is because of a lack of faith, everything that lacks faith will fail. Not everything that fails is because of a lack of faith. Everything that lacks faith will fail. This is what Jesus makes explicit. The disciples' lack of faith hampered the work of the kingdom, and the same can be true of us. 
So I want us to think about this on a, for a second, okay? I want you to do some self-reflection. Are there any areas in your life, any areas of our city, any work that God has called you to do where you doubt that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world? where you're not taking yet God's presence seriously? That's a tough question to answer, and it's not meant to drive guilt in any way, shape, or form. Because maybe, maybe, just maybe, we've been so informed by our culture that our frame of reference is if we can't reason our way out, if we can't plan our way out, then it's hopeless. And we don't have a concept for someone being bigger than you in your own world that God can actually do the impossible when it feels like we're facing the impossible. You know what Hebrews calls faith? We have to remember this. As, as the author of Hebrews defines faith as the conviction of things unseen. The conviction of things unseen. The conviction that God is actually present and he's working and he hasn't abandoned you. And even though you may see these insurmountable issues before you, that doesn't mean that God is absent. And just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not there. We need to learn to see a world that is saturated with God. With our imaginations now that even though we can't see, God is still working such that we can believe Jesus, who's been given all authority, that when he says the gates of hell will not prevail against his church, with so many different news stories, with even personal experiences that may have been damaging that you've had with the church, that that is true. That the gates of hell will not prevail. The gates of hell will not prevail against his church, and evil will not have the final word. Because listen, Jesus isn't highlighting their lack of faith here to shove it in their face. He's not doing that for us either, but he wants to show us a better way. He wants to show us that you don't have to stay where you are today. That that thing that you would so desperately long would change, that there is a possibility for change in the gospel and the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life and in the community of the church. The world around us is so much bigger than we often realize. Listen to the promise that Jesus gives here in verse 20. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Now, often what we do is we go, yeah, 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 move on. Um, but that's not an empty promise, friends. God isn't powerless, just waiting in the background. We have a God who is who came in the flesh and rose again and sent his Holy Spirit to dwell within us. This is not an empty promise. These are words that transform the landscape of life. Now, to be clear, though, I'm not purporting a name it and claim it sort of theology or some sort of prosperity gospel. I think that that has been a plague within the church that twists what Jesus is saying to be a tool now for our selfish desires that anything we want now gets baptized in the spirit and will become a reality, that's not true. Because often what we want is comfort when actually we have a Jesus, a Lord and Savior who died on the cross and said, pick up our cross and follow him. So suffering is a key component to this. It's not a just about prosperity. The, the question or the, the issue here instead is that when you're pursuing God's kingdom in every sphere of your life, personally, 
family, workspace, your community. When your desires and purposes, when they line up with God's desires and purposes, nothing is impossible. And that's not something we should just brush off, but something we need to sit in and the reality of what that could mean for us as God's people. How would your life be different if you actually listened to what Jesus said here? Think about that. That God can work through his people like that. If you saw the world through God's presence where mountains now looked like molehills. What if you really believe that nothing would be impossible for you in following Jesus? I was sitting thinking about this for quite a while, not to just brush past this promise, but to take it very seriously in what it means to be a follower of Jesus. What if, what if you believed that you really could surrender those old grudges, those old wounds, and forgive and find freedom? What if purity during singleness wasn't a pipe dream, but a gift? What if purity in marriage wasn't a pipe dream, but a gift? What if the Kansas City education system isn't bound and determined to forever be broken? But because God longs for the flourishing of his people and for the proclamation of the gospel can very transform the landscape of a city, even its educational structures, what if? But here's the question. If you're anything like me, I sit there and I hear this, and I started thinking, well, okay, the one thing I want to know is then how do I shift from lacking faith to seedling faith? Because that's the gap, isn't it? Little faith, which actually means poverty faith, which means lacking faith, to this seedling faith where now mountains could be moved when we pursue God's kingdom to be revealed in this world. How do we make that shift? Imagine all that could change if we genuinely believed that, if, if, we, if we encountered this shift. And I, I want you to hold on to this word, all, and I'm a pastor, so every now and then I'll do something really cheesy or more often than not. So all is going to be an acronym for us, okay, as kind of steps. They're not like the perfect steps and they're three steps because I'm a pastor and there's more to be done here, but this is a starting point, okay? All. And it's, it has to do with ask, look, and live. Okay, so the first one here is this. How do, how do we make this shift from lacking faith to seedling faith? First, ask for it from the one who gives it. God is the one who gives faith. If you go to Mark chapter 9, we find this same story. And Mark elaborates a little bit more. He gives us insight into the conversation that Jesus has with the Father. And when the Father comes to Jesus, he says, can you heal my son? Can you? And Jesus says, I can. If, if I can... And here we find like a resonance here. All things are possible for those who believe. And then what does the Father say? Many of us know this phrase well. I believe. Help my unbelief. He asks for more. Because it just seems out of the realm of possibility. I believe, but help me believe you here. And then his son is healed. And the disciples pull him aside, and when Mark is explaining, he gives us another texture to the story. Not only does Jesus say that you need a seedling, a grain of a mustard seed faith, but then he says, this kind of demon is only cast out by prayer. Now, is Mark and Matthew contradictory? No. 
Here's why. What is prayer? It's an acknowledgement that God is there and that he's listening and that he will work. And even the smallest utterance of help my unbelief can grow into a tree that conquers the garden. Remember that mustard seed analogy? analogy, The smallest seed in the garden that takes over the seed or takes over the garden? Prayer is an acknowledgement that God is present, that he's active in the world, and that he's the one who's going to bring change. And when we pray for faith and ask for faith, this is something that God so desperately longs to give us. This isn't something where he's like, ah, ah, ah. No, he wants us to be people of faith, to trust him. So first, ask for it from the one who gives it. Then secondly, look for it where he gives it. Look for faith where he gives faith. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 10 is really helpful in elaborating and reminding us that faith cannot shift unless we are revealed something. Faith is trust in something. It's a way of seeing something and now living in light of that, okay? What does he say in Romans chapter 10 verse 17? Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Hearing the gospel preached to yourself regularly. Being engaged in God's word, which is actually the word of Christ written. Are you engaged in God's word regularly? Because this is what cultivates faith. It informs now your imagination to see the unseen, or at least to anticipate the unseen. Half the time, we don't even know what to anticipate. But throughout history, God has given us these windows into how he acts and how we should expect him to act and how he anticipates us to anticipate him to act. This is what faith means, and this is where you cultivate faith, is by being in God's word regularly, allowing your imagination to be now bathed with how he has worked consistently throughout history and continues to work today. So not only ask for it from the one who gives it and look for it where he gives it, but then lastly, live in light of it for the one who gave it. Um, Honestly, I found that this one is a little more of an outcome of what the Holy Spirit does in prayer and scripture reading um, than it is a step. And yet there are times where you're called to take a step of faith into this new world or around in this new world to make really difficult situ- situation or, uh, uh, decisions that wouldn't make sense at all unless there was more that we don't see. Will you challenge the mountains? It seems almost impossible. You're beginning in this moment to expect God to already be there. That's what that means, living in light of the faith for the one who gave it, for his glory, Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. And do these good works so that they might glorify your Father who is in heaven. See, all of this gets twisted when it becomes about our glory, our self-absorption, our pleasure, but when it's for his kingdom and his purposes and his glory, he wants to answer our prayers. Now, there are times that we think it's for his kingdom and his glory, and yet, once again, his wisdom and his ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts, and it's beyond us, but yet we still come with faith, and he longs to work through his people if we will ask him for it, if we are looking to cultivate it and we're living in light of it. 
That's how we begin to make this shift from lacking faith to seedling faith. It's the work of the Spirit in our lives. Just a little shift in your faith. It can change everything. And maybe you came this morning with that one thing that you're just, you've been wrestling through, that you, you pray and you hope God would change. What would it look like to ask for more faith to navigate that? Have you been reading scripture on how God has worked in situations like that throughout history? And are you now living in light of the instruction he's given you in light of what you don't see, in light of what you have seen in scripture? Because listen, if you've ever been tempted, and I know you have because I have, and I think we all have, to doubt that the impossible is possible in your life, look at how the impossible became possible in Jesus. And we are called Jesus' brothers and sisters. We are Christians, little Christs. We are, we are friends, Jesus says. And what we see in the life of Jesus, remember the gospel, is the impossible become possible. Think about this. The creator of the universe became human. He became created in Jesus. He was born. He lived a fairly ordinary life until his ministry. And then God died. Who would have thought that God would die? And he would take all of our sin, all of our shame upon him, the one who's defined purity, holiness, and perfection because he loves his creation because we have pushed him away. And so he pays our penalty so as to open a way of reconciliation. And he dies for us, out of love for us. And then after three days, he rises again which also sounds impossible, which is many times one of the greatest criticisms to the Christian faith. There's no way of someone could rise from the grave, but it, but it happened in terms of eyewitness accounts. And now he offers us new life by the power of the Holy Spirit. As we see in Romans, we do not live our lives by the power of the flesh, but by the power of the Spirit. Doesn't mean perfectionism, but he's changing us. He's growing us. And then he starts a movement out of a group of people that everybody thought would dwindle after a couple years. And it's now spanned a millennia to change the very landscape of Western culture. Impossible became possible. That's the gospel. That's what God's calling us to. God came, he died, he rose again, and he sent his spirit to work in each and every one of us and in us together as his church. So I want you to ask this question as we close. What about you this week? This week? Will you make the shift? Will you make the shift from lacking faith to seedling faith? Are you taking God's presence in your life seriously? And God's presence in Jesus seriously? Because just a little shift in your faith can change everything. Let's pray. God, I know we step into some tentious conversations, which is kind of what Jesus always did, I guess. Um, we don't want to overstate and then get hopes so high um, that if what we wanted doesn't become a reality, it's because we failed. And we also don't want to go so far to the other extreme that we start living this humanistic life that you're completely disconnected from your people. But instead, we long to live in this tension where you're sovereign, where you're ruling, 
where you know what's best, and yet simultaneously you invite us into this process to, to further your kingdom, your kingdom's purposes, which is your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And here as a church, we're a foretaste of that until Christ returns. And, and we ask, God, that you would make us a people of seedling faith. God, come by the power of your spirit and give us faith. We believe, but help our unbelief. And may you give us the diligence, the discipline to be in your word regularly and so inform our eyes to now see what is unseen, to anticipate this whole aspect of what it means to live that we so often forget about. And so step out in faith, knowing that you do keep your promises, that this is not an empty promise, that even the most impossible of situations, the moving of mountains is possible when we're following you. God, thank you for hope. That we don't have to live in the depths of despair, that hope is actually much deeper in the fabric of the universe that you've created. And sin longs to make and separate us and make us so cynical. May you tear that cynicism away from us. And so we need a people of deep hope in what you could do as we follow you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.